Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to what may well be the longest love tennis podcast in history. I'm saying this before recording rather than after. I can only assume this might go on a while. So maybe just plan to listen to this in in two sittings because there is quite a lot to talk about. Uh, We will, of course, discuss Will Smith and Chris Rock, which is not a phrase I thought I'd be saying this week or any week, really. Uh, We'll talk about Ash Barty retiring, which I think I thought I would be saying at some point. Uh, Iga Shontek is the new queen of women's tennis. Vika Azarenka stormed off court. Uh, Paul Jubb won a challenger. Heather Watson beats Fitalina. Cam Norrie looks like he might go into the top 10. Joe Salisbury Looks like he's going to be the doubles number one. Uh, we'll also talk about Andy Murray, Nick Kyrgios, Emirata Kanu, Alexander Bublik. There is no shortage of tennis talking point this week. But first, we've had some more emails. Ooh. Remember, you can always get in touch with us on email. The address is lovetennispod at gmail.com. Uh, we'll always get back to you in some form. Uh, our first email today is from Nikos, who asks why we haven't spoken more about Katie Bolter. Uh, He writes, she won a challenger and then qualified for some WTA tournaments. Uh, I'm curious what has happened to her, and your podcast seems like a place to get an answer. You mentioned she wasn't nominated for the Fed Cup. She also withdrew from Miami and Charleston, so I'm hoping to learn why and when we might see her back. I hope she's okay. She has potential to be a big WTA star based on her game, strong serve, and good power. Well, Nikos, ask and ye shall receive. I have activated the old speed dial of important people. Uh, I'm told Katie has a left foot injury that she picked up in Lyon and she hopes to be back playing at the end of April. So there you go, Nikos. You now know exactly what's going on with Katie Bolter. I think we will actually talk a bit about her a little bit later on next month, maybe closer to her return, because Calvin, I know you know her people quite well and obviously you've seen her a fair bit. Uh, We've had another email from Philip in Las Vegas. Uh, Nice to have international listeners. Uh, He writes, (laughs) The pod should stick to commenting on tennis. Not the looks of players, since this is clearly an area outside the team's expertise. Petter is simply not a good-looking man. Tommy Paul, good-looking. Grigor Dimitrov, good-looking. 
Corder, not so much. Calvin opined in the same pod that Nick Kyrgios is good looking. This term is being used too loosely. <laughs> uh, I, it's hard to argue with him, to be honest. Although I will stand by the fact that I think both Corder, father and son, are pretty good looking lads. George? Who's disputing that Grigor Dimitrov is not good looking? That's, well, exactly. Who said that? Why? I think, why? I think, I think he, his point is, I think Philip's point is, you know, these are the good-looking lads in tennis and Corders ain't one of them. Um, in fairness, the, the conversation we were having on that, we weren't just having like a, a bit of a perv at some players. Like the conversation <laughs> when we discussed this was who is marketable. Like what what players, could, which players could make money outside of the tennis court. And that's why we were discussing it. That's a very reasonable defence, Calvin, but just kind of for the avoidance of doubt, I think Seb Corders a fitty and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand by that. And I, I, I won't argue. Uh, separately, this is again from Philip. Separately, of the three of you, I would always back George's pick to win a tournament since he rambles through the top 16 and picks them all. Awesome pod. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks very much for getting in touch, Philip. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed the shout out. Uh, we'll have to agree to disagree on the quarter family because I think the lads are good looking. Um, let's crack on with some tennis. And uh, yeah, Calvin, just by the way, I am looking forward to your remake of G.I. Jane. Just um, so you know, don't take that personally. Um, <laughs> let, let's talk about the incident that really is the only thing anyone has been talking about anywhere in the world today. Uh, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, telling him to take his wife's name out of his mouth after a uh, misjudged gag, I think it might be best to say, uh, about what he thought I think was Jaden Pickett Smith's new hairdo. It actually turns out she's got alopecia and... Uh, she now, he thinks, looks a bit like G.I. Jane, who I believe has a shaved head. Uh, overall, a bit messy. George, not not the tennis crossover story you were expecting on a Monday morning. It, it was not. Um, and it's probably fair to say that no one's come out of this looking <laughs> particularly great, really. Not least um, Liam Payne. Not least Liam Payne, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was watching. It. It was uh, for people who may have missed this or people who were in the US... Uh, the former One Directioner, Liam Payne, uh, was live on Good Morning Britain from the Oscars red carpet, speaking in what can only be described as a combination of Wolverhampton, Los Angeles, Netherlands, and maybe a bit of French. I, I, I've seen too many accents chucked in. Actually, the only one I don't hear is Wolverhampton. The way he was talking, there may have been a bit of Colombian in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Our lawyer is sweating already. He's in five <laughs> minutes in. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it, I guess you might say the the one potential positive that might have come out of it is that people might want to go and watch the film now. It might have. Well, I mean, Will Smith, it should be said also, and this has kind of gone under the radar, one best actor at the Oscars. <laughs> I, I was kind of surprised that they just kind of carried on as is after that and that he got to make the speech. I, I kind of at least thought it'd be like, you know, maybe we shouldn't just let him sit there and have him come up and do a five-minute speech. But no, um, <laughs> pretty mad. Um, uh, I mean, Calvin, look, look, there's lots to be said about exactly what happened, and we're probably not the people to say it. But um, it has allowed people to really rewrite history on Richard Williams, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the film did. And then I don't know if... if I've, I've only seen the video. I don't know if Will Smith said this himself, but I know... Ben Rothenberg hinted it of, of something that it was it was sort of some there was some bigger narrative that he was protecting his family like Richard Williams protected his family and yeah it's almost exactly what he said in his exception speech yeah yeah and look 
it's it's a nonsense. The film is. I know many films are they are, they use creative liberties, but that film is a work of fiction. It, it's it's not um, the the story of what the the Williams family was like. I, he might have been very good in it. Will Smith might have been very good in it, but again, without meaning to sort of cast aspersions or anything, it, it's quite well known what Richard Williams was like. Um, and yeah, we can leave it there, I guess. Yeah, I think that probably is about as much innuendo as our lawyer can stomach today. <laughs> George? I, I've not actually watched the film yet. Oh, great. That was kind of a way when it came out, I think. And uh, then... I, I, I tell you what, I tell you what. I, I, I watched it on preview and I wrote the the review for the Eye newspaper. And actually, I tweeted a link to it today because I think the, the point I made in my review kind of stands up, which is that Richard Williams should not be a role model for tennis parents. Um and it's a good film. It's a good watch. It's a great story, obviously. Like, and as Calvin says, like, there's some creative, uh, creative storytelling going on in there. Uh, but I really don't think people should look at it and go, "I need to be Richard Williams," because the reality is, Richard Williams brought up two girls to play tennis in in Compton. Like, that didn't happen. I, I think as well. I've I've watched it, and most of the things that happened in it probably happened. The issue is the stuff that they've left out yeah. that that isn't in there. The only thing that was in it that I'd, I'd cast serious aspersions about was the stuff about him constantly encouraging that they should always be the greatest sports people and be kind to the other girls and that kind of thing. It, it wasn't the case, and I've no doubt that they were treated badly themselves while they were on tour, but this idea that he wanted them to play fairly... he. Richard Williams had absolutely, and being kind in saying he had absolutely no problems in the two girls bending the rules. Right. Um, and I would say he encouraged the opposite. But yeah, the stuff that was in there, other than that, the stuff probably happened. But it was the mm. stuff that wasn't in there, that the stuff that was left out that would tell a more truthful story. I mean, it, yeah, it's quite interesting. Again, highlighting, I've not seen the film, but the idea that, you know, the Williams sisters are like, perfect sports like really uh full of like it was the word sportsman i was going to use sportsmanship but there's probably a more updated term on this less now. gender specific one <laughs> yeah um but i'll know, just cut that in i'll just cut I'll that just, in i'll just we'll, cut we'll, it in we'll overlay that we'll get that right <laughs> um but you know I, I, like and i don't mean this in a bad way but i mean serena if you go and watch her live there's a lot of intimidation of the other player you know mm. she makes a lot of loud noises she gets very kind of angry and she wants the opponent to know Hey, Serena Williams is on this side of the net, and it's not like you know she's not doing anything wrong, but it's not like and she's also not, not the first person to have done that. You know, Maria Sharapova does exactly the same thing. Exactly, but you wouldn't say it's like you know really, really wanting to be viewed as gracious by your opponent. That would really wind me up if I was at the other end of the net. It's not like a, a Federer kind of staying virtually silent the entire time he's on court and kind of you know the ultimate kind of um, we need to find a new word for sportsman because i can't kind of sport athletes spathlete ever again um, um but you know I, what i mean i mean it doesn't seem an obvious consideration she's a winner she wants to win there's nothing wrong with that but i don't understand why we need to play it into this thing as oh they're such lovely kind wonderful people on court it doesn't matter that doesn't need to be true like she's a brilliant warrior yeah. she's that, that, why do you need to rewrite that not that i've seen the film so maybe they're not quite making that point <laughs> it, it, it was also known um i mean in in the early in the early to mid periods of their careers it was known quite openly that they they used their they used physical intimidation in the locker room amongst the other girls with with both themselves and their family as well 
Um, and I know that Martina Hingis was was pretty. I think it, it led to her first retirement uh, by by what I'm told. Um, mm. And I think after that, I, in fairness to them, I think they toned that down. I think I think Venus certainly did. I think we actually saw we saw quite a change in Venus's personality. Um, I think in the second half of her career than than in the first half. But again, we don't know what went on. They probably felt justified in in, in being able to do that, and probably felt it get them wins. And I'm certain that they had a, a tougher upbringing than every most of the other people in the locker room. But again, it, it apparently it was pretty intense in the locker room when the Williams sisters were in there. Mm. And as George says, that's allowed. Like you know, that it's it's fine. That is kind of part and parcel of being yeah. a winner. And people do it all the time. They didn't invent it. But equally, yeah, let's not rewrite history here, which this film kind of has. And and that's what annoyed me was when Will Smith stood up and said Richard Williams fought for his family. And I I don't deny Richard Williams and the Williams family had to fight bloody hard. Like let's let's not beat around the bush here. They grew up in one of the roughest parts of town, in one of the roughest towns, and did something that no one else ever did. But that that's that's fighting. And Will Smith saw someone take the mick out of his wife. Like I I don't want to get dragged into the rights and wrongs of what Will Smith did because I only have one opinion on it, and it's really strong. And some people will disagree <laughs> with me. But I don't think that you know using violence to solve your problems should be something that we do on the but, but also Richard Williams as well he, he again something that doesn't get mentioned in the film but as their career went on he wasn't he wasn't welcome in the players box of either player for for quite a for quite long periods of time hmm. and there's yeah. reasons for that yes let's go move on before we get sued shall we i mean we might get sued anyway who knows we haven't got any money it doesn't matter it's been a rocky start hasn't it <laughs> honestly i mean yeah, how much of what you, I mean, it might, the thing is, we obviously record this and then it goes into editing. You might have only heard about a minute of Serena Williams chat there because I've just gone. You know what? We'll get sued for everything else we've said. So, think about what we've said and think about what we might not have said. Let's move on. Ash Barty retired last week. I thought that was going to be the big story we were going to talk about this today, but apparently not. Um, I spoke earlier today to Anna Smith, former WTA player and now a tennis coach, uh, to give us a little bit of a WTA perspective and also um, what kind of the younger girls in tennis think about Ash Barty and and her retirement. Uh, And I started by asking her if she had predicted the retirement of Ash Barty, as so many claim they did. With her, there's not much predicting, but um, let's just say it wasn't a surprise as, you know, someone else potentially retiring. So, well, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised, but also I wasn't, you know, completely um, not surprised, if that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) It was obviously the the talk of the tennis world. Um, You work with a lot of young girls in tennis and on a regular basis. Is she someone that they talk about? Was it something that really resonated with everyone coming through in tennis, even though she maybe isn't the biggest star that she could have been? Um. I, the thing is, I think the style of game that she had was so different compared to a lot of the styles of, of the other players. Um, so it was something that a lot of them look up to and, and kind of quite liked and and tried to kind of emulate a little bit. So, um, yeah, in, in that sense, they did. But like you say, she wasn't kind of necessarily the most the kind of the biggest personality that we've got on tour. But yeah, a lot of the kids loved her game and and kind of loved trying to play like her a little bit more rather than the kind of big hitting that most of the other females have. Does it make a difference that she won Wimbledon as well? Because obviously that's the tournament we all kind of relate to the best. 
Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, we we kind of have to remember she's been number one for the last two and a half years, I think it is. So yeah. I think it's almost easy to forget that because she's not sort of a, a Serena Williams, a, a Sharapova, that kind of personality. So, um, yeah, obviously Wimbledon brought her more to kind of our attention um, a little bit more. But, yeah, we also forget that, you know, she's won another slam and two, she's won three two slams, slams, isn't it? Correct. Three slams. So, yeah, you know, you, you kind of do forget that sometimes because she's quite modest and, and kind of so low-key. So, mm. yeah, I, I guess Wimbledon was the, the main one. Hmm. Um, do, do you think, I mean, as you say, there's no predicting Ash Barty and that, that's partly why it's an exciting topic to talk about. Do you think she'll come back? Do you think, you know, this is sort of the second time she's walked away from tennis? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, putting me on the spot. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think this time feels maybe slightly different. Um, you, you kind of got the impression that obviously watching the interview that she she was kind of emotionally spent. Mm-hmm. Um, that she's dedicated so much of her time and her life and her energy over the last few years coming back and kind of reaching where she wanted to. Um, that there isn't really kind of anything else left for her to achieve in the game. She's won the slam. She won Wimbledon, which she wanted to do. She won her home slam. Um, she's been number one what kind of what is there that's going to motivate her and for mm. someone who's such a kind of homebody like she is um you you do wonder that like what would be the reason that she would come back and it would have to be something pretty big and i'm not sure what else there is in the game for her to kind of achieve mm. what do you think her legacy is do you think it is important that she's someone who has kind of put herself first in a way that maybe we haven't seen people in tennis do before quite possibly i think it is quite refreshing to see someone like you say put themselves first and when they say do you know what i'm kind of i'm done this is, I, I just don't have the energy for this or the motivation for it it's actually quite refreshing especially when i kind of guess everything with osaka's happened and kind of all her mental health struggles um and you kind of still see her keep trying to go and, and keep going even though necessarily she hasn't kind of been enjoying it um I think I think it is important, and I think it sends out a good message as well that you don't just have to keep going, keep going. Um, so I think it's actually quite refreshing to see someone be like, you know what, you know, I, I've done everything that I wanted to, and even if it's at twenty five, then you know, I've got so much respect for her for doing that. Did, did you ever find points in your playing career, you know, even when you were younger, you know, coming through as a teenager, when you thought? I really don't want to play tennis this week. And actually that wasn't really an option or, or did it never come to that? No, I mean, I, I do remember, I think I was, I think I was maybe like 19 or 20 and it hadn't been going that well. And I was kind of struggling a little bit. And I remember there was a point where I was sort of, um, I don't, I don't really want to do this. I didn't want to go to the next tournament and lose again. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had moments where you just feel like you're kind of on a, on a rabbit wheel and you just kind of keep going what um, yeah what did you do did you did you just sort of grin and bear it or or did you take a week off or what um i think i took i took the week off and just sort of regrouped a little bit um mm. and just tried to kind of focus away from tennis and have some fun and um just just avoid it and, and come back because obviously i wasn't going to make such a, a quick decision on something that i'd dedicated a large portion of my life to mm. um so... did you have people around you say to, to what what do people around what i'm interested in is whether you think it's changed whether you think maybe you know whenever that was 10 years ago 
people said one thing and maybe they would have said something different now do you think those attitudes have changed at all yeah maybe i don't know because i i guess maybe i wasn't necessarily so vocal about it um and i think maybe nowadays there's a bit more emphasis on on people maybe being slightly better at sharing kind of their feelings i think there's been quite a big kick in terms of um the kind of like the mental health side of it and and trying to get people to share how they're feeling um so i think people are being a lot more open about it and maybe i just i guess i wasn't i was just like you know what just get on with it and (laughs) you know stop being (laughs) stupid um so yeah maybe there's an element of of it kind of people being a bit more open or willing to speak up about it now um Mm. Mm. and maybe there was before or maybe it's just more from from my side (laughs) um talking about sort of retirement and coming to the end of one's career I, i know your kind of situation because you went through a lot of injury and and i suppose ash has talked about her own body although we don't really you know know the full extent of of what injuries or whatever she's been through um tell me a bit about the the process of realizing that your playing career might be coming to an end and and what that's like from a mental perspective was it something that kept you up at night or or was there one moment where you realized and went yeah this this might not be for me anymore Uh, um i mean seven knee surgeries later you know you, you <laughs> kind of realize but like I was supposed to have I think I had my my knee operation in 2018 after Wimbledon and that was a planned procedure to have to try and um make my knees better to have more longevity um but obviously that sort of didn't quite go to plan um so for me, it wasn't, you know, that one sort of, I've had an epiphany moment where, you know, I'm done. It was it was kind of like more of a gradual process. And then I remember there was one um, time they did an operation about two years later that they actually looked inside my knee and they were like, okay, actually there's a lot more damage here than you could see in the scan. And that was when it was a kind of conversation. They're like, well, now it's, you know, to make sure that you have a better quality of life. So um for me it was it was more the kind of gradual i i didn't have that one moment where they turn around and said to me like you're done mm. um was, was there any feeling back. of relief when they said actually this isn't in your hands anymore and was there was there any sense of like oh okay well i guess i don't have to fight this anymore <laughs> yeah in a way but then in a way there's also a part of me that was that was really frustrated that my body had let me down because i didn't mm. want to retire at the time um i was at my career high ranking um and the reason I was doing the operation was to actually make it better in the long term so I could play for longer um so yeah I suppose in a way there's an element but there's also that that kind of a big frustration for me as well and I think Andy Murray you know he sort of alluded to it he wanted to go on his terms he didn't want his body to let him down and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the feeling that I had but then yeah I guess in a way it sort of makes it easier because it takes a decision out of your hands and you know, some people don't know when to stop. <laughs> it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to give up. Was it? And and tell me a bit about the first, like, because I I can only really guess what it's like to go from having something that you do every day and you're always working towards this same goal to then not having it. Were the first days and weeks kind of very weird? I mean, I know you stayed in tennis, but what was it like? Again, I think mine was slightly different. You know, what there wasn't that moment where. I was training and then I sort of twisted my knee and I did my ACL. Mm. There was always a plan to go back. So I was kind of rehabbing with a goal of of going back. Yeah. So it, you know, I kind of still had that structure. And then I had I had time to kind of get my head around 
not doing it, I guess, for a living anymore um, and kind of putting other things in place. And, you know, when I was doing my rehab, even when I thought I was going to come back, I was still um, helping out with the LTA, you know, doing camps for the younger kids and things like that, doing commentary as well. So I was kind of laying the foundation for what I was going to do after. Um, so for me, it wasn't that sort of one day I'm a tennis player, the next I have to figure out what I'm doing. I had... I guess I was lucky in the sense I had more of a gradual kind of progression. Hmm. And just finally, obviously, Iga Shontek is going to be the new number one. Um, how big an opportunity is that for her to to kind of? I think we all think she's a big star already. In that we can see, we watch her play and she's amazing. She's maybe not the best known person in the world. How big an opportunity is for her to stand up and say, "Hi, I'm Iga Shontek. I'm the world number one, and I'm going to own it." Yeah, it's huge. It's. Um it's it, it, like you say again it's just another opportunity for someone else to kind of put their hand up we've had ash for kind of quite a long period of time now so it's nice for the for the tennis public to get kind of someone different um but she's kind of quite a quirky sort of character isn't she and i think she'll bring a lot of personality to it um and a lot of energy and she's just it's quite it's quite refreshing because obviously ash was a lot more mellow quite you know chilled out subdued whereas you know, eager sort of wear her heart on her sleeve. You know, you know exactly <laughs> what she's thinking. So it's, um, I think it's nice that in sort of women's tennis at the moment, we've got so many different personalities um, mm. and to have, you know, a new one with eager, I think it, it's quite good. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to her. Yeah. Um, and so many of the girls like love her game, you yeah. know, the serve and the massive forehand and the sliding and everything like that. So um, I think she'll be a, a well-liked number one. Anna Smith there, former WTA player and now a uh, tennis coach in Britain, working with the Emma Raducanu's of the future, as I'm sure she hears about a hundred times a day. Uh, I don't think any of us, and let's not let's not pretend we did, saw Ash Barty's retirement coming. Anna certainly didn't, I certainly didn't. Uh, even George, one of the great aftertimers, wouldn't claim, oh, are you going to, are you going to try? No, I'm going to say the opposite. I mean, this is proof why I don't make solid predictions. Because last week I made about the most solid prediction I ever make, which was that Barty would meet Sviontek in the French Open final. And for that to have been ripped out from under me within a week is is astonishing. Spectac that, that, spectacular. It's spectacular. It's amazing. That's why I don't course. do it. It's That's huge. why I don't do it. Yeah. Uh, Calvin, you didn't see it coming, did you? No, um, absolutely not. Well, I think the main reason I didn't see it coming was that because she she takes these long gaps out, and you'd think that if it was somebody else, and they and I wouldn't have predicted it anyway. But you'd probably have a 15 percent more sort of inkling if it was say if it was Fiontech or someone like that who tends to play all the time, plays all the tournaments. But Barty tends to have these spells, which we we've, we've sort of mentioned that it's not particularly good for the game when she does it. But um, and even you know she's even taken thinking a couple of occasion she's taken a year out without um, for one reason or another without mm. retiring so no you wouldn't have predicted it at all um how damaging is this for the women's game george you know the world number one retiring at the age of 25 saying you know she's done the alexander the great she's wept because there was no more world to conquer she was a woman that we really wanted to be a really big star in the game and and now she's as far as we know done with tennis I think it's, in a weird way, it's kind of not that damaging in terms of the profile of the sport one way or another. Like, I don't think Barty's, she's a she's a big 
athlete, but she's not like an Osaka. You know, if Osaka had walked away last year at the French Open, if that had been her last ever tournament, that would have been a massive, massive, massive story. This is a big story. It's not as big as that. I think the thing we've lost, though, is that Barty definitely was becoming more of that figure. She was dominating the game. But we've lost this kind of potential massive set of rivalries that would stem from Barty because Barty was so consistent that if other players, as Fiontek looked like she was building herself up to, and you know, to be fair, she still is on that path, Barty there or not. Um, you know, these potential rivalries with Goff coming through or Osaka, if she can kind of get back on track, you know, that's the thing that I, I feel like we've been robbed of from this generation so far. And I know we've said this a million times, but I, I think Barty is just the ultimate case in point. She's had three Grand Slams and not had a single match of notes that I think about on those Grand Slam wins where I think that was an iconic Barty win. That was amazing. You know, she's beating Carolina Pliskova. That's, you know, a former number one, which on paper looks kind of good. But if anyone watched that match, you know, it was, she was en route for a golden set for the, the first 13 minutes were probably the most awkward watch of my entire life in a tennis court where you're just urging it to be a good match. She beat Marketa Vondrasova, who struggled to stay in the top 50 after reaching the French Open final. And this year... She's beaten Danielle Collins, who, let's be frank, probably won't get to another Grand Slam final. Like, I, I think we're all kind of on that page with her. And, you know, that was the only one that was kind of close to a a big match, shall we say. I mean, the one that maybe might stick out in the future off the top of my head would be the meeting with Anisimova in the French Open semifinals. If Anisimova goes on to be a really big player, which we all think she's capable of being, that was a really good match. But as it stands at the minute... That was like a teenager being beaten by someone who would go on to be world number one quite comfortably and hasn't come anywhere near to fulfilling that potential. So at the minute, that doesn't look like a, a kind of a, a classic win. So, I, yeah, I think it's more the potential of what could have been with Barty than actually what we've lost right now in some ways, as much as I like Barty as a player. I, I still think I'd still be surprised if we never see her play tennis again, to be <laughs> honest. She's 25. It's a long time retired. And what we know about her, she's, she might not like, apparently we, we were, we're told that she didn't particularly like the traveling and that kind of thing. But what we do know is that she loves competing because she's yeah. done it in, in two different sports professionally. And apparently she's very good at another one. Mm. So I think that if she doesn't go into golf, which we're told that she may do, or there's been rumors about it, I'd be surprised if she's not back in a couple of years. She'll only be 27 there's another potentially another seven or eight year career for her there at, at the end of it. And I just don't see how somebody at 25 who loves, I know a lot of, comp I know a lot of natural competitors and I mean, look at Andy Murray. He can't leave it alone now. Hmm. Um, and I don't think you can just leave it all behind at 25. I think as well, like anyone listening who is over the age of 25 looks back at decisions they made when they were 25 that they were absolutely certain were the right ones at the time which they knew they were doing the right thing which everyone around them told was the right thing to do but now looking back say actually yeah that actually wasn't a great move and i think we we would all say that i think i, I certainly can look at things i did when i was 25 years old and think yeah that was you know probably not the best career choice in my life I think, I think the other thing that's kind of quite surprising for me is that there seems such an obvious 
kind of final goal for her. I know she was kind of talking about, you know, winning Wimbledon was all I kind of came out to achieve. That was the thing I dreamt of. Then winning the Australian Open was massive. But she could win all four slams. I mean, that, that's something that, you know, not many players do in their careers. That's an absolutely, that's an achievement that sets you apart for me in terms of the greatest is, can you do it on every single surface? And I know it was funny because after the Australian Open, that was kind of a bit of the conversation. I remember a coach, Craig Tizer, being like, I'm not sure Barty can ever win the US Open because they use different balls there. Mm. And I was kind of thinking, that's a bit of a weird thing for a coach to kind of come out and say. Like, I think, obviously, I think Barty's good enough to kind of get over the the balls being slightly different there to kind of train herself. She's that, she's such a brilliant athlete. Um, but maybe in hindsight, we should have seen that as a hint that she can't do it because she's not going to bother <laughs> playing it. <laughs> yeah, that, Craig Tyson knew something we didn't at that point. It's very unfair. Um, just, just, just on on the kind of not to dig into the mental side, but and and the physical side for that matter. It's worth noting she said that her body and her mind, frankly, couldn't couldn't you know were done. She was spent, uh, and we don't really know anything about many injuries that she's had or or what's going on in her head. So. I don't think there's a lot to be said on that. But if she's someone who's decided that she doesn't love tennis anymore, and I think that's not an unfair thing to say from everything that she said, surely we don't want people like her playing on and turning up to every other tournament. You know, we've talked about the fact that these some of the top women on the WTA don't play every tournament by any stretch of the imagination. Surely we don't want someone like Ash Barty playing as world number one and hanging on to her ranking with the way the system is if she's not going to play. Uh, I mean, in fairness, I, I think that she probably didn't love tennis. I think that's the only way I, that's the only way I can square the circle, to be honest, that why she was will, willing to sort of call it a day under that. Even if there was an injury, you think you just take take three or four months out. But I, I, I probably think that she doesn't love tennis. But in fairness to her, she never showed that on the court. She was never doing anything like, for example, what Azarenka did last night mm. um, and just, just rolling off. I can't remember any match where I've seen her tank or anything. She competed. Um, and so... Yeah, maybe if she didn't love it, yeah, I understand what you see, what you're saying, James. But I think that it's in the way that she went about it wasn't detrimental to the game. Yeah, she'll definitely be a, a massive loss. I don't, you know, I'm always a bit worried when we have these conversations that sometimes we're just framing things as quite negative. I mean, it's obviously going to be a huge loss to tennis in terms of she was a a really great role model as an athlete. She was a brilliant player. She had a lot about her, and she was kind of. You know, a lot of it does kind of make me want to vomit a little bit when people are kind of trying to be like, "Oh God, I love how Ash has just done it her way, and and that's it, and that's how we should all live our lives and whatever." But you know, there is there is a degree of truth to that. That you know, Barty was someone who it never really felt like you could bend her to your will. You know, she'd speak honestly, openly. If she didn't want to speak to you that much, she wouldn't. And that's mm. totally fine. And you know. It's always hard to say, will she regret this? Won't she regret this? But right now, for her, yeah, this is what she wants to do. And it's, a, it's to the detriment of tennis, but and, hey-ho. And, and I absolutely don't want to sit here and say, oh, I'm so happy for Ash Barty. And, like, you know, I am in a sort of um, peripheral way, but I don't know Ash Barty. I find it very hard <laughs> to be that happy for someone that I don't know. You know, I'm, millions of people get married every day, and I'm very happy for all of them, but in the same way. Uh, but what the kind of thick end of that wedge is, I think, and, I, you know, as you heard Anna say a little bit about earlier on, um, is that Ash Barty stood up in front of the world and said, I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm not. And I think there are a lot of people in sport over the years who have said 
to mum or dad or coach or whoever, I don't want to do this anymore, and have been told, tough, that's that you know you're going to be world number one you're going to do this you're going to do that yeah i wrote a biography of max verstappen recently and there were times in max verstappen's childhood when he said to yoss um i don't want to do this anymore and yoss said tough and i actually don't think that's right some of the time sure you've got a nine-year-old kid maybe sometimes they're just saying they don't want to do something but when a kid or even a young adult says I don't want to do this anymore and especially with with young girls and young women you know who haven't been empowered maybe to control their own lives that much in history and really only have had proper independence in the world for the last 30 years depending on where you are in the world or even some people claim still don't I think it's quite powerful to have a woman at the top of a sport say yeah thanks thanks but no thanks and you know that I think that's important I, I, I appreciate that not everyone will agree with that but I do think there's an important point to be had there what I'll say on that, James, is that, again, it comes back to this idea of what decisions that we made at 25. And I think decisions that we make younger than that as well. I, I know a tennis player. I don't think it's fair to name the player um, who told me that his parents were, he he, did, he didn't enjoy playing tennis when he was younger um, at all. Didn't, didn't enjoy it, even though he was playing to a very high level and wanted to stop playing numerous times. Uh, and his parents just wouldn't let him. And he told me a couple of years ago that he's forever grateful that they wouldn't because now he loves playing, loves competing. He's ended up making a hell of a lot of money and he's living the time of his life at the minute. So I think it's as long as it doesn't get violent or emotionally violent or anything like that, I, I think, you know, sometimes it's fine to tell your kids that this is what you're going to do. It's only the same as going to school, I guess. You That basis, you can say, I'm not going to school. I don't, I, I don't like geography. Uh, and a couple of other things. Um, I am... Um, what was interesting on that is she's basically done the thing that Nick Kyrgios has been talking about doing for the last five years. Um, because he keeps saying every, every five years he says he's, he's only going to play for another six months. Um, mm. And uh, I mean, I th I'm totally off subject on that. I, th I think the one thing that I think is a bit sad about it is that the way that she played was a real evolution in terms of for the women's game of somebody being at the top of the game. She had this all court game slicing, didn't just do it by just big power hitting like, most of the female players do and most of the ones who are going to take over now like even osaka who i think is great to watch great player she's basically pretty one-dimensional um she blows people off the court whereas barty had i think a lot of girls would have looked at her and thought right this is a different way of playing the game a more interesting way of playing and unfortunately there's i guess fiontech's a bit like that but not quite like barty was not to um labor the point a bit too much but i was quite keen for us to do a big thing on tennis parents at some point and i had thought that these weeks might be quite good uh thinking there wouldn't be much news but maybe we'll park <laughs> park that for 2024 when things calm down yeah I, li I like that at the moment i've been at work similarly waiting for a quiet week to do a few things and assuming that one will come along but it, it does it doesn't seem to happen um very quickly um there's one one note i made kind of earlier in the week when i was cycling home um a kind of mental note to talk about um reference cross reference here with with Bjorn Borg, you know, who I guess most people would say is the most famous, you know, shock young retirement in tennis. I think he was 26 when he retired. I think I'm right in saying. Um, Calvin, neither of us were born, so I'm going to lean on you for for the exact impact of that. I, I know it's different because Bjorn Borg was more successful than Barty and was more successful from a younger age. And there are so many differences, but are there similarities as well? 
Yeah, yes, James, I do remember exactly what happened when I was six. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember it in great detail. Uh, um, no, I, th there definitely are similarities. Look, they're top of the game. The, the big difference with Borg, which I didn't realise until I read a book about the sort of period, about this time last year, actually, was that he was very much on the way out. His form had gone. He'd been completely dominant from such a young age. But I think from that stage for about 18 months, he was really struggling against McEnroe, against Connors. Lendl had come in and was basically starting to destroy everybody. Um, and I think that it, it was a different time then, I think. And Borg was so good from so young, which again, Barty had that period where she wasn't kind of like that. No, it's one of those. Look, actually, Barty was around for a long time and none of us picked her as world number one. Like she was basically a top 20 player for a long time and then just take, took a huge step up. But yeah, I think it's a bit different in Borg because Barty was, look, she's comfortably the best player in the world at the minute, like by a mile. And she could look, she could have won another. She could have, if you'd said to me that she was going to win six of the next eight slams, I'd say, yeah, that's probably about right. Whereas Borg, um, he'd not won a slam for a period of time there. And I think he genuinely might not have won another one. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the shame of this, isn't it? That, you know, Barty, Barty really was so fantastic at the minute, but it felt like she'd only kind of just started being fantastic. You know, it's, this really happened just like at the start of the pandemic that Barty kind of hit world number one, kind of won the French Open the year before. You know, it's been a fairly recent rise to the top and it just felt like, you know, we could have a few more years of this, Sviontek would catch up, other guys would catch up, and this could be the the golden age of women's tennis. And now it's just a bit like, well, that was good, but my God, it could have been so much better if just I, someone I else had well, come with her. I think as well that, the, the, again, a major difference with the Borg one is that back then, players were they were under much bigger restraints. They had to play a certain amount of tournaments, and the, the, the amount of tournaments they had to play was a lot more than what it was now. And that was a big problem that Borg had. He didn't want to play as much. Him and McEnroe had an ongoing dispute going with the ATP, or I don't know if it was called the ATP back then. And the ATP wouldn't budge, and they told Borg, you have to play this amount of tournaments. And I think it was something like 35 to 40 weeks of the year playing tournaments. And he said uh, he, he just wasn't doing it. He wasn't going to do it anymore. Hmm. Um, you mentioned, George, this, this great era of women's tennis that we're now looking forward to um i'm going to read you the top 10 from this time last year and their current status in the game uh, ash barty retired nomi osaka number 98 simona hallett number 19 and out injured sphere kennan number 146 alina Svitolina number 27 and can't beat any british player bianca andrescu number 119 arena savalenka number six serena williams 241 carolina pliskova number eight and kiki burton's retired now, I appreciate there are some players pushing through and the ones who obviously weren't in the top 10 this time last year, Paola Badosa, Barbara Kuchikova, Maria Sakari, Annette Contevate, Daniel Collins as well, and Garbina Muguruza. Um, but it's it's not quite the... Uh, is it still the big golden generation we wanted it to be? No. <laughs> I mean, no, obviously not. I mean, we, we were at a point a year ago where we had two two players who were miles out in front of everyone else in terms of Barty and Osaka. And the difference was one of them was brilliant on the natural surfaces. The other one was brilliant on the unnatural hard courts. Um, <laughs> but they were both, you know, Barty was threatening to kind of get really close to Osaka on the hard courts. And that was set to be a big rivalry. 
then behind that you were looking at people like you know i've kept mentioning goff here you know goff's maybe yet to take the step <clears throat> that maybe we thought she might have within the last year but it's still going to get there i'm pretty sure um Sviantek, we've all said for a while, should be a top five player comfortably. She's going to be world number one now, which, you know, is no harm to the sport. I think Sviantek's absolutely brilliant. We all rate her incredibly highly. But it's just, again, we're now at who who's going to be this permanently... You just have to look at the rest of the players' points, by the way, compared to Barty, to know that no one else is ready to be number one right now. Now, Sviantek's in the form to show she's ready to take over the mantle, but that form's not been there over the last year consistently so yeah it's, it's a massive loss from that perspective and people just need to get their acts together basically because um I, we can't have the top 10 being completely different again next year it's just it's too it's too much chaos we need some order here is um i had something i meant to look at today but i can't find it is is sviantek going to world number one legitimately or have they taken barty out of the rankings uh, taking her out of the rankings i find that weird that i don't I, do the we player has to ask to do it yeah like, they, like, yeah uh, she had to request to be removed she hasn't i mean she's not been removed from the rankings yet it'll be the next update because obviously we're in right. the middle of miami um so she is technically still world number one but yeah uh, the wta did tweet like you know welcome the new number one yeah. and obviously there was a an amount of hand wringing in the comments being like she's not number one yet oh it's not fair and it was very painful can I just say, in the incredibly unlikely scenario where I was in the same position as Barty, there's absolutely no way I'm pulling myself out of the rankings. Well, you just want to be number one for another life. I'm going to be number one not playing. She'd be number one till the French Open comfortably. I and think I'd, she'd be I'd number one for longer months. than that. I, yeah, Wimbledon. I, I think she yeah, Wimbledon would probably, go as far yeah. as Wimbledon, yeah. It's, it's she... not even just that. It's if she, if say, she, I'd stick my, keep myself in anyway, because if she comes back, let's say a year from now, it wouldn't be a year because she'd have no points, but mm. like, let's say next Australian Open, she's missing it. She'd still be seeded. You don't have to go in unseeded now. Uh, yeah. I, well, hang on. How many points? You get 2,000 points for winning the Australian Open. So that alone would get her into the top 22. Yeah. Well, I mean, Raducanu is near the top 10 based on that, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. about well, she did also get to the fourth round of Wimbledon, in fairness. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. But, yeah. It's amazing how we, we sort of forget that. You know, this, it was a, you know, <laughs> just. But it pales into insignificance, I know. It was just quite rubbish, wasn't it, really, James, when she could just go and win a Grand Slam? She only made the Well, fourth. yeah, she bottled it Terrible. in the fourth round. No, we can't. We're not Piers Morgan. We're not turning into Piers Morgan. Never Piers Morgan. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, we are, of course, in the middle of the Miami 
open uh, over on the east coast of America. It all looks very sunny. I was speaking to a racing driver who lives in Miami just a few hours ago, and he was telling me that it's 25 degrees and he's got the aircon on. I've got the heating on in my flat, so I wasn't exactly impressed by that. Um, plenty of things going on in Miami, as always. For some reason, it, it seems to throw up more news than any other tournament. Um one scene that people may have seen is Victoria Azarenka pretty much storming off court uh, the other day when a set and a break down in, I believe, her third round match. Um, she was told by the umpire, please wait, Vika. You know, we have to wait, uh, as we've seen a couple of times. Uh, she was losing to Linda Fruvertova, the Czech teenager who I don't know a huge amount about, I have to admit. 6-2-3, love. She walked off. She's released a statement saying I shouldn't have gone on court today. The last few weeks have been extremely stressful in my personal life. Last match took so much out of me, but I wanted to play in front of a great audience. They helped me pull through my first match. I wanted to go out there and try, but it was a mistake. I hope to take a break and be able to come back. Uh, George, Victoria Azarenka is obviously um, from Belarus. She's playing without the Belarusian flag flying over her at the moment uh, because of the role they played in aiding the invasion of Ukraine. I imagine that has at least something to do with with this. You you may imagine that, yeah. Um, I mean, Azarenka's kind of had quite a few issues over the last few years, hasn't she? I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on with the custody battle of her son for a long time that kind of mm. kept her off court. So I don't know if it's if there's something more kind of personal rather than well, I, I mean, they're both personal, I suppose. But you know what I mean, like really really close to home compared to something a bit more um nationally going on it's always really hard to say and obviously i i feel like we should always express the uh, olive branch of hoping that everything is you know okay it's not very nice trying to go to work and function as a human being when things around you are going terribly um mm. but yeah i mean i guess in a statement she's kind of says yeah she shouldn't have acted how she did and, and i think we all broadly agree with that and it's a shame because you know, poor old Fritova, who apparently has a 14-year-old sister who's really, really good as well. Because oh, that's what the Czech Republic really need more of, is like decent female players. Like, honestly. Yeah, two brilliant teens who are set to come through. Um, the new William sisters, perhaps, the Fritova. <laughs> didn't quite roll off. It's, it's Fruvatova. There's Fruvatova. An extra, there's an extra syllable in the middle there. Um, too much, isn't it? Um, well, I mean, at least the Williams sisters had an easy name to say, so I can get behind that. Uh, whereas I'm going to have to learn how to say, F I bet you it's not even pronounced like that as well. It's going to be one of those ones where I should have looked up on the WTA website beforehand. But given that she's the world... One of our listeners or correctors, probably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you're one of our Czech listeners, drop us an email, lovetennispod at gmail.com, and you can let us know exactly how to say her name. Yes, but um, nevertheless, a, a shame to see Azarenka. I think it's her seventh retirement mid-match in 14 months which is you know clearly there's more than meets the eye going on there which is kind of disappointing especially for someone who has like come back and been quite refreshing on the tour and she's been a really good talker and she's obviously had some amazing results so yes ups and downs to say the least uh, what have been the other big stories from Miami I suppose we have to say Nick Kyrgios's form I mean I'm hesitant to talk about him too much because he could have retired himself you know at any point in the next 24 hours before you necessarily hear this podcast um but he is taking on Yannick Sinner tomorrow he's already beaten Adrian Manorino which might be the biggest contrast in styles I can think of uh Andre Rublev managed three games against Kyrgios Fabio Fanini only managed six in the Brat Derby 
Uh, Calvin, I know you love watching him. Um, and let's face it, we let's face it. Let, I always say this when I introduce Calvin to rant about Nick Kyrgios, but we do all love watching him. He's a great tennis player, isn't he? Yeah, he's a great tennis player. He's he's box office as well. Like, there's no one else better. I I found it a bit strange last night, and I found it a bit strange throughout this tournament and last week. To be fair, um, the commentators banging on about what a mature performance it was. And how his body, somebody last night was saying they were so impressed with his body language. He's battering everybody. Right? <laughs> he's, he's not got his body, it's not like he's sulking his shoulders and breaking rackets when he's like winning 6 3 6 love against the number eight in the world or number five in the world, is he now? Rublev. Right. And th- this is one of the things what cracks me up both when I'm coaching and when I hear commentators saying it. I'll get on to Curious in a minute. I'm just sort of airing a grievance here. Um, is that when people sort of say, oh, mentally, it was really good today. You can't judge somebody's mental performance if they're winning all the time. That that's not what that that's not what we're looking at. People's responses and their resilience and their robustness is when things aren't going their way. And that's what I want to see from Kyrgios. And yeah, he was, he was quite good against Nadal in that respect. Um, but yeah, look, he can batter anybody on the court. But this this is not this is not what we're looking for from Kyrgios. It's what he's going to do, as we discussed last week when can he respond to disappointment well and i think it's a bit early we're talking about him winning the tournament i'm watching a guy now who i'm watching medvedev now and there's not many people beat medvedev on a slow american hard court i know that much i mean i i i'm a, a bit concerned about making too many predictions given last week's complete disaster but i'd sort of teed this up thinking a bit more far ahead about curiosity i mean every time you start to think this guy's turned a corner i'm suddenly thinking wow actually wimbledon could be such a great chance for him given djokovic who knows how much he's going to be playing none of the other younger guys are quite up to speed on that surface as of yet curiosity is a very very naturally good gifted grass player you just think could he could he could he suddenly go and spring a Grand Slam shock. And then it's like, well, as soon as one bad thing happens, that's when you know it's all <laughs> going to totally implode. But you, you, you've got to think he's got a good chance the way he's looking at the minute in terms of actual game and quality and fitness. He, he looks a, a different player to me this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the current state of men's tennis is more likely for him to go and win a... Because, because, like, Djokovic, who knows, maybe Djokovic won't be allowed into certain countries. Roger Federer is injured. Nadal, I appreciate he's still playing, but he is currently injured and has, like, a hairline fracture in his rib. Well, Nadal probably won't... If we all think Nadal's going to win the French Open, he probably won't even bother playing Wimbledon. I mean, let's be honest. Medvedev, you know, I don't want to joke about this lightly... But it is genuinely being talked about. He might not be able to play Wimbledon. Yeah. You know, it, it, so in terms of the top guys, suddenly that's potentially three of the top five wiped out or at least having their form ripped away. You know, if I was playing money tomorrow on who's going to win it, it'd still be Djokovic. If he's there playing that tournament, he's comfortably the best grass court player there. But th- there are going to be opportunities for these guys because the other guys who are up there are just not not great grass players. And that's probably why Murray's lobbing all his eggs into one basket, as we'll talk about later with Lendl, etc. But I, I think Kyrgios, why not? Is it, The only issue is he's just not going to play enough between now and then and will probably lose all his form and it will go wrong. There's also not, there's not many players on any form either. You look at Zverev's in no kind of form. Rublev's 
Rublev was in decent form, but he seems to have gone completely to pot over the last couple yeah. of weeks. Um, City passes in no kind of form. Then you're into the guys like Casper Rude, who are kind of a bit overranked. If I mean, I'm he's honest. not going to win Wimbledon, is he? I mean, he's... no, no. And then like you've got, I guess, Berrettini is another one who's no sort of form. Like yeah. so many players out of form. Felix Auger was start the year great. We thought he was finally coming, and since then, since he won that tournament, been absolute garbage. Chapovalov. <laughs> Rubbish. On that point, though, the Canadians should also be targeting Wimbledon seriously this year. I mean, they're more than good enough to play on that surface well and bring their level up to other guys that may be tougher to beat on the top. I mean, it's, I mean, to be honest, though, we're talking about players targeting Wimbledon here that have never won Masters series. <laughs> like, you know, we need to sort of get Hoover, realistic. Hoover Hercats, Wimbledon champion 2022. You heard it here first. He's already <laughs> won his Masters series. I mean, you know, he did very well at Wimbledon last year. I, why I why on earth not it's open Wimbledon this year I'm telling you right now and then Djokovic is going to win it well yeah this is the thing isn't it you like you say that but realistically Djokovic is probably not going to drop a set and you're going to look like an idiot which I'm all in favour of I have to yeah. say um, I only agree with our listener who, who emailed in and, and mentioned that you do pick the whole top 16 <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you'll pick a winner one way or another um, you mentioned Andy Murray he was beaten by Daniel Medvedev having made it through a first round which he didn't drop a set in the first round, which I, I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, but we were all pretty convinced that he was going to make that match against Federica Dobonis last for about four hours. Um, so convinced that they even had uh, a punt on uh, a certain length of match, which Murray pulled up one game short of. Well, I wasn't very happy about, but to neither here nor there. This isn't a betting podcast yet. Uh, but he did run into Daniil Medvedev, who beat him 4-2. and two. Georgia, any signs of positivity? Any anything that Murray will take into his four week training camp with Lendl coming up uh, that he can kind of lean on? Well, I mean they, they've taken lots of positives. Um, you know, Lendl's done a bit of media this week, as has Murray after the match. And I, I'll be honest, I I watched a lot of this match, um, and I really couldn't quite understand what everyone else was saying about it. There were a lot of people saying there was lots of kind of vintage Murray moments where he, you know, there were good moments. The first set was far better, but to me, it was a bloke who totally run out of gas in the second set. Never really, he didn't have a break point all match. So how people are painting this as some sort of great success. I mean, to me, this just painted once again, the, the huge gap between guys like Medvedev and Murray that he's not going to climb and finish. And I, I honestly thought, I was kind of half expecting him. I, I think I'd text Simon Briggs to say, oh, I bet Murray will say after this, he's going to throw in the towel after Wimbledon. He's just going to kick it in because it was, I just thought he's so off the pace. He will be so unhappy with how far away he is from a guy like Medvedev. And, and uh, yeah, Briggs texted me back later after his press conference, being like, Hard disagree on this one. I think uh, Murray's very positive now. He's going to come back, keep going. But honestly, I, I I don't understand how people are taking positives from it. Like apart from a few good shots and moments, to not get a break point, to not ever look like winning, and to really bearing in mind it was six four six two, be kind of bending over, looking totally knackered, out of sorts. Uh, he's not going past the second round in any of these tournaments. So fatigue can't really be a thing. I, I thought it was pretty terrible, to be honest, but maybe I'm in a bad mood this weekend or something. Calvin, you're usually a ray of sunshine. Cheer us up about Murray. Um, I didn't see the match. I was on a stag do on Saturday, so I didn't see any tennis uh, on Saturday. Um, but 
I mean, all I was told, I obviously know a couple of people who were in his camp, um, and I was told that he looked pretty good going into Miami. They were pretty positive. Said there's been a real improvement in the sort of three weeks, from, from three weeks before that, and they were saying he, he looked like he was playing some serious stuff. Hard to gauge, isn't it, against Medvedev? Medvedev's currently the best tennis player in the world. Mm. Um, who's best tennis player in the world who's allowed to play because he's not a lunatic. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, so losing losing four and two to Medvedev on a slow American hard court in itself isn't something that you'd go, oh, it's time to retire. Mm. Um, but like I say, without seeing the match, I, I don't know. I, I do think he'll, as I've said before, I don't really see how he's beating players like Medvedev on hard courts anymore. I do wonder whether, you know, he, he talked in, in post-match about you know, I could have done this and I could have done that and I know that now. And I do wonder whether there's this disconnect between Murray the, the brain and Murray the man. Because I do think that he gets into these matches and all he wants to do is get on court with these big guys. And I think he gets into those matches, he sees them beating him and he goes, ah, I just have to do this. Because he knows what it is he has to do, but he has no ability to do it. So all he thinks is that he, he just has to sort of practice doing this more and therefore it'll come in the match what he doesn't i think realize or won't let himself realize or whatever is that he has no ability to do that anymore george i think i think lendl's quote lendl's quotes were quite revealing in some way like because i kind of agree with you james that it, it always seems to me that murray is and he's kind of conned me into this a few times before where i've suddenly thought oh yeah he's not that far away and there's going to be this moment where he turns the corner because he's kind of just building up his tennis again and whatever um, but but it was interesting because Lender was like Andy basically called him saying I know I'm really close to the end there's not much time I, I need someone who really gets me who can get everything out of me and kind of properly go for this um, so yeah I mean we, we've spoken a bit before about how there's all these eggs in one basket at Wimbledon but it was kind of interesting hearing Lendl frame it like that to me because as you say from hearing Murray speak about performances over the last year it doesn't always sound like he knows the end is close. And it doesn't always sound to me that he, he's worried about bridging that gap. But I'm at the point now where I'm watching him week in, week out. And I'm thinking, if if this was six months ago, this result, I'd see this as a positive. But mm. to be at this stage against Medvedev now, to me, it's not positive. He's been on tour for such a long time now, injury-free. I'm not seeing this progress that other people are claiming is there. And I hope I'm wrong. And I hope this, you know boot camp with Lendl in Miami this four weeks they're gonna stay out there where the only break is a trip to Disneyland where his kids are gonna come out and whatever um you know I, I, ho I hope he gets over the line and comes back into the grass on whatever trajectory they think they're on and that's a surface he can do some serious damage but I I I, I think it'll all go wrong and he'll just call it a day this summer that's seriously my rogue prediction right now let me just read you something from from that post match that I'd appreciate your views on Calvin. Um, he was asked what what he thought Lendl would bring this time and um, what he'd bring to the equation. He said, "I think probably some clarity over the right way to play and the right way to practice. I don't feel I've been practicing the right things probably for eighteen months or so. 
it's difficult to sort of undo that in the space of a few weeks, obviously. That's one of the reasons I'm taking a big period of training to try and change some of those things and hopefully get my game into a place where it's, you know, more competitive against the top players again. Uh, in the past, the way that I've played and I guess the way that I've practiced as well has allowed me to play a bit more, a little bit more offensive at times, a little bit more pace on the ball. But there is some technical things that sort of allow me to do that and I've been practicing the opposite of that for a period. Yeah. Can you unpick that in any way? Does can can you kind of work out what he's trying to say? Uh, yeah, in a way, um, and I agree with it. But I agree. he needs to play more aggressive. I've been saying this for twelve months now. He can't. Mm. But it's something that it's difficult because it's it's the scorpion and the frog thing again, isn't it? it it's it's just in his nature that he doesn't play aggressive. Mm. I can't see how and. Maybe Lendl is one to get that out of him. Where he's, got, I think he's he's almost got to go caution to the wind. He's a beautiful ball strike. He's a big guy. Is Murray clean, hard ball strike? He's got a big first serve. He volleys great. It's almost like he's got to throw just almost play like Bashilashvili with a decent volley, and <laughs> just, just just leather everything and try and get into the net. But, but he how does do that. how does that look different in practice, like uh, well, in training? Well, this is the thing because this is what I find quite mystifying because he's he's practiced with Lendl before, and from what. From what I know and from what I'm told about Lendl, it's not like he has any sophisticated practicing drills or anything like that. He's pretty old-fashioned. He's pretty drop ball, basket drill, closed drill, that kind of thing. I'd be surprised if those things are going to make bridge the gap if mm. Murray is doing that. I don't know what he has been practicing. I know he's been working with coaches who um, would, wouldn't be doing that, and that's what worries me a bit. But I also know that Andy from the very limited time that I've spent on court with him practicing with players, he's pretty certain about how he wants to practice. Mm. And um, if my concern is if we're bringing Ivan Lendl in for some cutting edge, sophisticated practicing style to, to bring it forward, I'd, I'd be worried about that. <laughs> he's, um, not, he's not a modern man, Ivan Lendl. Um, unless you're talking about his golf game, which is very modern. Yeah. I'm, told, I'm told that he's very good. But look, it's one of those. It's like, I'm torn on it, to be honest. It's like, he might be just the one person who can say to him, look, you know, for want of a better, pardon my French, for, hit the effing ball <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, and, he, and he will listen to him. Hmm. But on the other side of it, even when, even when they were in the prime, you know, it was pretty much taken that Lendl didn't actually do much other than, this is the thing. I think this is the thing where I'm trying to say. Lendl apparently doesn't do much on the practice court. He stands there. He gives some sort of little tips and that kind of thing, but he doesn't arrange the practice. Delgado used to do that all the time. You know, so I, I, I'm a bit miffed as to what he is going to bring. Yeah, we, and we've said this time and time again that the thing Lendl brought was the tiny, tiny 1% of Murray's mentality. That's the, that's the most obvious thing, that when he was without Lendl, he was still getting to slam finals all the time. He was still a brilliant player. But when Lendl was there, he could get over the line. And, you know, that might be almost as much a superstitious thing anyway. He might have done it without Lendl on those occasions because, you know, he kind of w was getting Djokovic's number on grass, you know, when he beat him at Wimbledon. That was the one surface you'd really back him on um ryan itch he would have beat anywhere you'd have thought to be honest like without lendl um so i mean it's always hard to say exactly what what the trigger point is but yeah right now murray needs about 65 percent rather than one so i think the, he, they need to find a lot quite quickly 
uh, there's, listen, there's no question that Murray's best times were when he was with Lendl. That's not what I'm not looking to cast aspersions to the otherwise there. And he was also, let's not have this forget, Murray's still the only person to have beat Novak Djokovic over five sets in a final, um, in a in a Grand Slam final. Um, US Open 2012 was the only time that anyone has ever beaten Djokovic in five sets in a final. Um, and he was probably the closest that anyone's come to being 50-50 with Djokovic in slam finals or in any matches, really, in big matches, um, when he was with Lendl. Because, to be honest, he's had he's had Federer and Nadal's number, hasn't he, hmm. in in the big match finals as Djokovic. Apart um, yeah, yeah, apart from Clay, but then he beat him on he beat him in the U.S. Open and the French, didn't he? He's not actually played many, has he, with uh, Nadal, but. Yeah, so you know that there's there's that in it. I'm I'm told also that there may yet be another addition to the team as well, um, as well. I mean, yeah, I don't I, know the, who the... that is. I've not heard any rumours as to who that is, but I'm told that they're, and I don't even know whether that's coaching or not. But I'm told that they're still looking to make one or more additions to the the Murray team. I think it's a, it's sensible at the moment. Um, as someone who, like involved in Team Murray, as I spoke to the other day, said never say never more than ever before as in i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow never mind next week so i think we are very much in late stage murray throw everything at the wall uh which is not it's not unreasonable he knows the end is nigh and i think we would all do the same let's move on uh some good british news at last uh paul jubb a great result for him uh, late last night in Bolivia, of all places. I can't imagine many Brits have ever won in Bolivia, but Paul Jubb won his first ever challenger title there uh, at the age of 22. You think he's going to make the world top for 250 uh, if he hasn't already. I actually didn't check the rankings this morning. He is. He's miles into the world top 250. 228 in the world, Paul Jubb is. Thanks Lovely to that Lovely jubbly. Yeah, well done. Great headline, George. There's a reason you're a civil servant now. Um, Calvin, you're obviously someone who knows Paul Jubb pretty well. You've seen him play an awful lot. This this feels like a, a step forward. Any title win always is at first at a certain level as well. I know Jubby very well. I've known him since he was 10. Um, spent a lot of time with him. Um, he's a great lad. Um, obviously, as his his back his unique backstory, which I don't think it's I don't think it's probably best not to discuss it again now because I think it's almost getting a bit cliche and he probably doesn't want to discuss it every time he wins something um, but um, but just in case people don't know his cliche backstory I mean give us a pricey. Um so Jubby has uh, both his parents passed away when he was when he was young um, but when he was six um, his, his dad was a soldier um, and passed away and his mum passed away not long after um, that uh, and he was brought up by his grandmother um and his uncles uh, and also by his coach in hull a guy called johnny carmichael who basically was did one of the most amazing jobs i've ever seen um in terms of taking on holistically everything to do with it um and they became very very close and still are very close um so yeah that, that that's that uh, then he went to college and won the ncaa's obviously and came back and um was very successful up on the grass a couple of years ago um it, it- this is obviously on clay and in Bolivia, which, uh, as I understand it, is some of the tougher conditions in the world to get to go and win in. I mean, are you surprised to see him win a challenger on clay? 
Uh, no, because the way he plays is very, he's very, he's counter puncher. He's rapid around the court, um, moves as well as anybody in British tennis uh, around a tennis court. He's a fighter. I don't think conditions would would bother him too much. Obviously, there's uh, most places in Bolivia are at altitude, aren't they? So mm. I assume this one maybe is. Um, I mean, I guess it's, and again, I'm very cautious here of downplaying it, and I don't wish to, but probably one of the weaker challenges around in Bolivia. Um, I don't, you know, it's not sort of one in America or France, but you know, you've got to start them all somewhere, and it's it's, mm. it's a huge step for him. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm not surprised with the surface or anything like that now. Um, and yeah, he, he just keeps. Uh, the thing is with Jubby is that every stage since he was nine years old, at every stage that anybody, everybody, many people have thought, right, he's reached his level now. He can't go any higher than that, and he keeps going to the next level. Mm. Uh, yeah, he beat um, Juan Pablo Varias in the final, the Peruvian world number 119, which um, on paper at least is a, a decent result. I can't admit to having watched it because it was quite late and it was Mother's Day, so it had a couple of beers. Um, but yeah, a terrific result for him nevertheless. I mean, I think he's now British number seven because I think he's got above Penno um, in the national rankings. Um, what is what is his kind of, you know, what's his, his trajectory look like now? You know, it... it he looks like he's taken things relatively, you know, step by step, and presumably it's a, it's a year of playing challengers, a Wimbledon wildcard, maybe is that kind of thing. I, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, I think he's yeah he's at that ranking now where it's it's tough. You've got to now win a whole lot of matches to move to the next level. You mm. can fly through up to that level pretty much, but um, yeah, he's got to, he's got to win at the challengers now. The challengers is is serious, like it's serious level. As I've said before, there's not a great deal of difference between challenger and uh and main tour event so yeah i would think he, he'd get a wild card into wimbledon i would think um mm. all the grass tournaments um and compete there so yeah he's um i mean the one thing that he struggled for the last couple of years with i wouldn't say struggled with injuries but he struggled to get i guess he has a little bit but nothing major just niggles that when he's on a run tend to halt him a little bit right. and that kind of thing so i guess I... he'll want to keep a good solid I imagine it's the problem with being decent at that level. You play a lot of matches because you win a lot of matches. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And he's, um, won, a, he's won an awful lot of matches at Futures level, I can tell you that much. Um, but yeah, great news for him. We always like seeing uh, young Brits coming through and doing well, um, especially at that that level. And I think one of the things I'd say as well is it, Jubby's a, a one-man story about this idea that, that tennis is an upper-class sport and it's not welcoming of the lower classes, if you will, although I hate using that word. Um, there couldn't be anybody who is more from that world than Paul Jubb. And in fairness to the Lawn Tennis Association, I, we all give them a bit of stick. They've done a phenomenal job in backing him at every stage. Hmm. More good news uh, for British players overseas as well. Heather Watson making Harriet Dart's win over Alina Svitolina look a little bit less impressive. But nevertheless, um, good for her to pick up that kind of victory uh, over in Miami, which is never... Well, I always think it's a good place to go and win. Uh, she lost to Belinda Bencic in the next round for just five games. Um, George, you obviously stuck this on because you had a specific point to make about Heather Watson. <laughs> I think my specific point was that it's actually been you know, in a week where there's so much actual news going on. It's been a pretty big week for British tennis news in terms of every lot of players just seem to be suddenly finding a bit of form. I'm sure we'll come on to Joe Salisbury in a minute because that's probably the biggest one. But, you know, for the singles guys, you know, we've got Norrie closing in on the top 10. Heather, 
Heather perhaps motivated a bit by watching Harriet Dart pass her for British number two. I, d- I don't really know how competitive they all are with each other and that sort of thing, but you'd imagine there's a little bit of rivalry um, kicking off around there that might kind of kick Heather into gear, I suppose. But yeah, I think it's just it was more just to say, well done, good stuff, and going, yay, British tennis. Beautifully patronising as well from you, George. So that was uh, overall pretty well done. Um, yeah, I think I'm right in saying that uh, Heather is not playing the um, Billie Jean King Cup over Easter in Prague. Um, I think she's... Uh, am I, have I got that right? Yeah, she's uh, she's trying to focus on improving her singles ranking. That was exactly what I wrote down uh, in my notes. Um, there's some good news, as though you alluded to there, George. Joe Salisbury is going to be the... I, is it his first time as world doubles number one? It is. Yeah, he's the um, the third British number one in history, after Jamie Murray, Andy Murray, and so he's the first non-Murray world number one in British tennis history. Yeah, because obviously the rankings only really kicked off in the seventies. So. Right, okay. we had some pretty good guys back before that. Big Fred Perry probably would have. <laughs> big, big Fred Perry, as no one has ever called him, <laughs> the BFP. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, congrats to Joe. You know, he is, and I know we don't talk about doubles enough on this podcast, but the reality is that not as many people watch doubles or like doubles uh, or play doubles. Although, I mean, Calvin, you know, a brilliant for joe and i know you'll have something to say about that but also it is a sort of resurgent form of the game at the moment yeah i watched the match last night when they beat um joe and rajiv ram beat um Sitsipas and feliciano lopez and the stadium was full i mean i think it was one of the maybe the third stadium court that they were on um mm. and there's a great atmosphere it was a night match um they're really getting into it which um which was good to see um and yeah, it's you know the British are good at it. We were the only. I guess we put more into it than any other country, um, but we have a British double system that most of the players follow. Well, all of them follow really. Um, that's led by Louis Kaye, obviously, and I think this will be about Louis. I don't know. He's seventy fifth world doubles number one or something <laughs> like that um, since he started coaching. So yeah, Joe's good as well. You know, he's, I've spent time on court with him. He's, he's really good. Um, when you watch him and I'm surprised to be honest, I think it's been a bit of an anomaly in the rankings that he's not been number one earlier. Hmm. I think it's fair to say that Pavic is probably been the best doubles player in the world for the last two years, but Joe's not been far behind him hmm. um, in that time. And Rajiv's very good as well. It's, it's strange doubles ranking as well. I don't know how I always wonder about this, how Joe's world number one, but Rajiv isn't because they play all their doubles together. Joe's done a bit with Neil Skupski, to be fair. I imagine it must be that, that Rajiv didn't play for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But, um... So I think the difference is 250 points, and I think yeah. it's that 250 that they won together, <laughs> Salisbury yeah. and Skupski. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, I think we could we could strangely end with a... I, I read somewhere yesterday that we could end the week or next week with a strange system where Joe is the world number one, but Neil Skupski could be leading the race. He could be number one in the race. <laughs> so... Um, I, I seem to remember, Calvin, you, you relaying once a message from Luke, obviously a, a player you work with who had been on court with Joe. And I, I don't know if this is a direct quote, correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember it was something along the lines of he's just so good um, or, yeah. or words to that effect. I mean, is it noticeable when, when you know you get on court with someone who is at a very elite level of doubles or singles and, 
and there is just a noticeable zip on the ball. Well, it's not necessarily the zip on the ball. It's the, the British double system. It, it, in order for it to work, you have to follow it all the time. And I know Louis, I've seen Louis Kaye go nuts at players if they if they might sort of hit a volley in the wrong place somewhere. There's there's a system where when the ball's here, you hit the ball here. It's very sort of, if you imagine Pep Guardiola's sort of very prescriptive way of coaching football, that when the ball's here, this player runs there and you pass the ball there, that kind of thing. You, can, you can't do that at singles because there's too many variables, but doubles you can you can plan you know the options that people have you can't predict where the ball isn't going to go you can't predict where the ball is going to go but you can write off options where it's definitely not going to go and where you can put the ball that they won't be able to make the next shot and that kind of thing so what joe the impressive thing about joe and anybody who follows the, the british double system well and you've got to really practice it and really drill it is the repetitiveness that they can do that um and also one of the things, getting a bit technical here on doubles, one thing that the, the British system has worked on and what Louis is keen on is, is what they call mid-court defence. And it's kind of like where you're at the net, but also on the defence. And if you watch Joe and Rajiv at that, where they're sort of the, the, the baseline players are really drilling the ball at them hard. And the British players are so good at, at not, letting, not letting the ball pass and on sending the ball back deep, having good hands to defend the net, if you will. It's always we tend to think of the net as being on the attack, but in doubles, it's not always the case. I was going to say, I, I think Salisbury might be the only player me and Calvin have both been on court with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, maybe did you have a follow up to that. Maybe work on this, but I, I, I have played with Joe Salisbury. Um, at, they did have quite a fun. ATP finals event where they got all the doubles guys to play with the journalists who was there. Um, I think this was actually in the pandemic year when it was really restricted um, who could go. But yeah, it was good fun. And he actually hit an amazing tweener winner during that um, while play. I think I can't remember who it was past. It was, I think one of the New Zealand guys, maybe Michael Venus, he absolutely just um, amazing shot. I also, uh, hit a wonderful second serve ace against Simon Cambers, which might go down in <laughs> tennis journalist folklore. I um, wish I <laughs> wish it was like against an actual player. Like, you know, if you'd said, like, I hit a second serve ace against Henri Continent or something. Annoyingly, if it was an actual player, it still would have been an ace. It was a really, really good serve. It was like, <laughs> Wasted you know, on the likes of Cambers. It would have been a better story. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I, we'll come up with that list another week because... I've got some other names on my list, like Muguruza and Martina Hingis, and um, who else is on there? But anyway, we, we can we can do that another week and see if there's any more crossover. I suspect Salisbury might be Calvin and I's sole crossover of a player we've shared the court with. So the sort of tennis edition of Eskimo Brothers. I don't I don't <laughs> like it a huge amount. If I'm totally honest, you can imagine the imagine the list of the really on tenterhooks for when George makes his <laughs> list of players who he's been on court with. <laughs> I'll be getting emails for weeks. Lovetennispod at gmail.com. With um, bated breath. <laughs> we, we haven't got much time left at all, uh, but we should touch on this because it was a sort of slightly wild thing that happened this week. Um, Nick Kyrgios essentially taking a shot at... Uh, we haven't... I mean, I think probably some people have done some Twitter sleuthing and, and worked it out, but I haven't seen it. Um, Nick Kyrgios took a shot at who we think is Danny Hanchakova, who... Obviously, um, fronts up a lot of uh, Amazon Prime's coverage. She's obviously a, a former a player at a very good level. Uh, and she 
you know, gets interviewed every now and again and says things about Emma Raducanu because people ask her questions about Emma Raducanu. Um, George, what did Nick say and, and what what's going on? Please explain some Twitter beef to me. It's a beef. Uh, well, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but it was... Well, I do, so I'll read it out for you in Nick's accent. Go on. What's with old retired players giving their opinion on our stars now? I love A-Rod, and I agree we all need to chill with the rackets and all that. But Jesus, read an article about a past female player talking about Raducanu. No offence, but she's a far, far bigger name already, mate. <laughs> it, it didn't say mate. I added that for a fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure. I don't want to steal Calvin's line that he, he only cares about uh, how big you are as a star <laughs> or whatever, but I think that that's basically what it boils down to. I mean, look... Had, I always say I think tennis needs more pundits who are willing to call players out and make it a bit more interesting. I think if you look at a lot of the kind of football model of how they spark interest, it is stuff like Roy Keane just going <laughs> after someone. And I think it, the commentary is all far too nicey-nicey and not kind of realistic and being willing to kind of call people out slightly. But that's one of my own pet peeves. So I'm not going to have a go at Hanchukova. Whether, you know, I, I do also think the stuff with Raducanu and sponsorships can be a little bit of a lazy attack on her, but equally she needs to start doing her talking on the court. So I'm I'm kind of sitting on the fence as ever, probably. Well, no, I don't think you are. I think saying that, you know, I think you're being quite punchy there, George, <laughs> say she needs to do her talking on the court. You know, she won a US Open. She got to the fourth round of Wimbledon, as you always seem to forget. What's the problem with that? Yeah, nothing's wrong with that, but I just think it's all about backing up, isn't it? If you want to be, I, I, and I only hold her to the standards of where I think she can get to, given the quality of her game, which, you know, I always think it's a compliment. If I don't think you're that good, I won't hold you to high standards. But I think Emma's trajectory can be to become a, a consistent top 10 player who can go deep in slams. I don't think there's that much opposition in the women's game in terms of consistency to stop her achieving that and, uh, make her mark so yeah i mean if i ever bother to hold you to a high standard it's only because i think you're potentially excellent and you know she has already won a slam she's far ahead of that trajectory in many ways but the thing she's got to get right is um you know doing it week in week out on the tour and maybe just lifting that level slightly but she's doing okay it's not terrible but i just think she can be better calvin i don't think you'd disagree with that would you uh i'm kind of I don't know. Maybe I, she's a good player. I said this last week. I'm, I'm talking with somebody last week about it. They were saying that, that that she needs to sort of making out that she's playing below her level. She's not. This is a level. The level is somewhere between 100 and 70, I'd say. Is that 800 then? No, 800. <laughs> oh, it's just John McEnroe. Yeah, one, 170. Uh, somewhere between 100 and 70 in the rankings. Um, and I think, you know, she's not playing any worse. Take the US Open out of it. She's not playing any worse than what she was other than that. And that was a, I, I definitely don't think it was a fluke that she won the US Open, but it definitely was a perfect storm of situations that came together for her to win it. And you take those two weeks out of it, she's playing where she ought to be. She may get better than that. She may not. I can't say fairer than that. You've made it to the end of the longest ever Love Tennis podcast. We'll be back next week. George will almost certainly have more things to say if he can squeeze them in. I love the public candlestick and I want to see more of it. Sports Social Podcast Network.